Well, this morning, um, we want, I want to talk about a subject that is more and more over time disappearing in the body of Christ, which is repentance. So I want to ask the question today, what happened to repentance? Where did it go? <laughs> when last have you heard anybody say, hey, it's time to repent, folks? Church, it's time to repent. United States of America, it's time to repent. And um, I'm always amazed at how mm, people love to demonize an idea, right? Like Christian nationalism is the greatest threat to the United States today. You go like, what is Christian nationalism? They go like, I don't know. But it's the greatest threat to the United States today. <laughs> like, and, uh, and I'm just wondering, like, didn't God call us to the nations? Yeah, to every other nation, not this one. <laughs> every other nation needs to serve God from the top to the bottom, from wall to wall, from, from border to border. United States, no. No. And I'm just wondering... What happens if God sends a prophet to say, United States, it's time to repent? Oh, that's way too nationalistic. <laughs> but I believe that repentance is something that God is bringing back into the church, bringing back into families, into the individual, into us corporately, our lives, and into the gospel. Because I want to show you today that there really is no gospel without the call of repentance. We love to celebrate the fact that Jesus came as a baby. Um, it's a lot of money involved with that celebration right there once a year. <laughs> and then we love to celebrate the fact that Jesus went to the cross. And then we celebrate the fact that He rose from the dead. And we don't really celebrate enough the fact that He ascended into heaven, which is part of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ are all for those events. It's the incarnation. is when He came. Number two, it is when he went to the cross, the atonement. Number three, it's when he rose from the dead, the ascension. Um, excuse me, when he rose from the dead. And then number four is when he ascended into heaven. Those four historical events that took place and the spiritual significance connected to those four events. This is the gospel, the work of Christ. And that's what needs to be proclaimed, the work of Christ. But in that proclamation... We have to proclaim what Jesus came and did. And He came and called women and men to repentance. And He called us to go to the nations and call them to repentance. We have to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We have to baptize nations and we have to teach them what? To obey all that He commanded us to do. So we have to go to the nations and command them to obey Christ. And that is via the path of repentance. Nobody runs from God and then decides to obey God without there being a turning, without there being a repentance. And so there is no gospel without the call to repentance. So in our day and age, there are many variations of the gospel. So I want to mention a few to you outline them, because I think you will recognize them. They are all over the place. Almost every single gospel imaginable is preached without the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only one that's not being preached. So my goal is to show you how the enemy, the wolf, the Antichrist, has come to kill, to steal, and destroy the sheep. And that is by preaching a variation of. It's not the true but it's a kind of gospel. By preaching something that sounds right, but isn't true, because it's not biblical. And by preaching an impotent gospel, they do so with, by covering it with icing and then with a rainbow-colored sprinkle. <laughs> That's how they preach the gospel. And so I want to show you just a few of them, just so you can see that repentance is void of this gospel. And the first is the psycho psychological gospel. And this is when the minister only teaches on felt needs. 
overcoming discouragement, breaking depression before it breaks you, how to deal with negative feelings, using scriptures on how to, how to heal from a broken past, always appealing to people's brokenness, people's pain, people's pressure, their, people's rejection and their, and their propensity to be identified as a victim. You're some sort kind of a victim, and Jesus came to free you from that victimhood. Now, a lot of this uh, will happen naturally if you hear the true gospel and you give yourself to that gospel. But that message right there in and, in and of itself is not the gospel. This minister will say things like, you've been hurt. And immediately the people go like, oh, he feels what I feel. <laughs> he understands me. Guess what? Everybody's been hurt. <laughs> it's, like, it's like these prophets. <laughs> they come and, they, and they'll start prophesying something to you that is so gray and so common to all people. The guy goes, oh, he heard from God. That's true about me. Thus saith the Lord. You're growing older. Oh, how did you know? <laughs> he must hear from God. He'll say things like, you've been hurt. You've been mistreated. You're a victim. You've been trivialized by others. They don't see you for who you really are. You're so much more, but nobody sees it. God does. He sees what's in you, that value that gift that everybody else ignores. God sees it. He put it there. He knows your worth and He wants you to know that He loves you. You see, this is great. But it's simply not the gospel that results in saving faith. That's simply not how people come to Christ. That's not how they are saved from their sin. <laughs> You exit sin through what? Repentance. But that's not what this gospel teaches. If, the minister's central if this minister's central message does not call people to turn away from sin to God, if it doesn't call them to put themselves on the altar, if it does not call them to pick up their own cross, the instrument of death, to live out the reality of, of baptism, then that message is a crossless gospel, an impotent gospel, cannot save, powerless, and it's deceptive. No wonder ministers have to spend so much time convincing people that they saved. Now, I was trained in this. After you pray the sinner's prayer with somebody, you have to tell them. Now, listen, the very next thing that's going to happen is Satan's going to tell you it was all a lie. He is going to try and convince you that this was not true. Now, if sanctification is evident, fruits are therefore evident, therefore justification was real. The only proof I have that I was justified is that I am being sanctified. The proof that I was saved is that I am being saved from sin. Here's another gospel. It's called the motivational gospel. Very familiar with, I'm sure everybody's very familiar with it, very popular makes a lot of money, this one. This is when a minister sees himself as your mentor. He sees himself as your cheerleader. He sees himself as your coach. He may bring you to a different emotional state, but he didn't bring you to the cross. He does not call you to deny yourself because that doesn't feel good to start off with. Yucky. Deny myself. He may bring you to that different emotional state, but He didn't bring you to the Lord. He'll zone in on how you're going to have favor to overcome setbacks in your life. Your career, your, finance, your finances, you're going to have a comeback. Then He uses scriptures. He'll say things like, and I quote, next time somebody says, you can't win, you can't make it happen, 
then you reply with this. With God, all things are possible. When he says, when somebody comes to you and says, you're a failure, you're not going to make it, then you respond with, if God before me, who can be against me? If your boss tells you, you're no good, then you reply to that voice, I can do it because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have what it takes and I am favored of the Lord. He closed one door because he's about to open a better one. That's the way you live your life. And again, this gospel never called anyone to repentance. It called pe calling people to live in denial, basically. <laughs> this is a crossless, impotent, powerless gospel. It's never saved anyone because it's never called anyone away from the very sin Christ came to save them from. Then we have what we call the pragmatic gospel. The pragmatic gospel is the gospel that's being preached that calls people to certain practical ways of winning in life, certain practical ways of making sure your wife doesn't leave you, <laughs> your children don't turn out too bad, certain practical ways that will help you become more prominent in society, earn more money, and just have a better life. Again, this gospel does not result in saving faith. Well, Jacques, a lot of wisdom is, that's been preached comes right out of Proverbs, and that's true. Nobody ever said that being wise is a foolish thing to do. No, being wise is a wonderful thing to do, but it doesn't save you when you exercise pragmatic wisdom in this life in order to be saved for the next. It's an impotent gospel. It doesn't call you away from the very sin Jesus came to save you from. Then we have the prosperity gospel. Promises you more stuff, all right? <laughs> but doesn't call, you, doesn't call you to give up your idols. It teaches you to want more of those idols. It doesn't call you to die to self. It causes you to feed self's Appetites. This is a crossless gospel. Why? Because it didn't call people away from the sin Jesus came to save them from. Then we have the social justice gospel. This is, of course, one of the more insidious alterations of the gospel because it seems so noble. Instead of calling you to deny self, the guy that preaches this gospel teaches you that it's a just and righteous thing to be filled with covetousness and with greed and with envy. And this is justice. It makes no sense at all when you try and filter it through scriptures. He teaches people to get even. This is a crossless gospel. It has no call of sacrifice. It is a call to covetousness. No call of denying self. It is a call to greed. It, is, it has no call within itself to give yourself to Christ. It is a call to envying what others have and you don't. It is a crossless, powerless, impotent gospel calling people to take vengeance on others. Then... Of course, you have liberation theology gospel. This version of the false gospel is where power brokers base their effectiveness uh, and their success on turning people against each other. It's really Marxist at its roots. And then you have the humanist gospel. Uh, the, this aberrant version of the gospel zones in on how valuable and worthy you really are. Do you realize how valuable you are? If you don't, go to Starbucks one time. They will tell you how valuable you are until you disagree with them over anything. I had the wonderful privilege and honor of speaking with a Starbucks manager last week. And it was less than two minutes and he went, this conversation is over. <laughs> I simply asked you questions. I asked you to explain to me what you, what you put on your, on, your, on your notice board there. That's all I asked. You know. 
But it's again this fake idea of everybody's valuable who agrees with me. Everybody's valuable who likes me, loves me, adores me, and thinks I'm valuable. You too are valuable. <laughs> but if you think I have no value, you're a scum. This humanist gospel appeals to people's need to feel great within themselves, to elevate self, to feel worthy, and so makes the person the center of every Bible story. You know, we have something called exegesis. Exegesis is when you study the Scriptures in order to exegete or pull out of the Scripture the author's original intent when he wrote that verse. Then you have eisegesis. That's when somebody comes and they impose upon a verse their meaning. But then you have a third category called narcissus. And this is where the humanist gospel uh, comes in. Everybody's like, you are David. You are David. Go slay your giant. <laughs> no, no, no. You are the Israelite hiding behind the, in the woods, scared of the enemy, and you needed a champion, David, whom Jesus is the greater David, right? <laughs> and he came and he fought on your behalf, and he killed your giant, sin, and the consequences of sin, which is death. That's why if you have the real Jesus Christ, it is, it is going to be because you have a new relationship with sin. Anybody, this is the first sign of anybody who truly got saved. They have a brand new relationship with sin. What they used to love, they now loathe. And what they, were, what they used to resist, they now want. They resisted the gospel. They resisted the things of God. They didn't understand it. Their minds couldn't submit to it, the Bible says. Suddenly now, they have an interest in it. Like the Apostle Paul. He's on his way, on a horse, I'm assuming, pursuing Christians. God touches him. He turns around. He's on his way making more Christians. The very ones he tried to eliminate from earth, he was now making more of. Again, the first sign of anybody who gets touched by God is that they have a brand new relationship with sin. The very sin Jesus came to save them from. So the humanist gospel is like, a f it's like when somebody gets behind a pulpit and all they do for an hour is they flatter everybody. Have you ever seen that? Flatter them in this way, flatter them in that way. Now, when you give somebody a compliment, you're giving them something. When you flatter them, you're taking something from them. Have you ever noticed? And so they flatter. This false gospel does not teach God offered His saving grace because He loved you. It doesn't say God came to save you because God loves. No, they teach God saved you because you are so valuable to Him. Well, that turns the gospel totally upside down, doesn't it? People who adhere to this message have been blinded by a humanistic gospel that makes man valuable and makes God the beneficiary of man's value. Oh, God benefits so much because you are so valuable. It was totally worth it for Him to die for you. You were that valuable. Think about it. Here, God becomes the one who benefits from the crucifixion. That is a pure work of the flesh. Christ didn't come to purchase man's value. He came to pay the penalty for man's sin. You say that again. Christ didn't come to purchase your value. That's not why He hung on the cross. He came to pay the penalty for your sin. And not because you are valuable, but because God loves. For God so in this way loved that He gave His only begotten Son that all the believing ones should not perish. Statement of fact. So in every one of these versions of the gospel, we will find that the elements of the, of the true gospel is absent. And I want to just point out a few of them. The first element that is absolutely absent from every one of these gospels, the pragmatic gospel, the prosperity gospel, the social gospel, the psycho psychological gospel, or the motivational gospel, the liberation theology gospel, the humanist gospel, this is absent. Radical corruption. None of these guys ever came to people and said, by the way, you've completely fallen. 
and that's why you need a Savior. Not, nobody preaches that. That's why when you do preach it, people run out the door. Because <laughs> that's not what they came to hear. They didn't come to hear how radically corrupted they are. They didn't come to hear how totally depraved they are. But I'm valuable. No. You're like a painting. You're only as valuable as what somebody's willing to pay for, right? So the one who put the money down is the one who put value on you. You are intrinsically valuable. And same thing is true. Jesus didn't die for me because I'm valuable. I'm valuable because he died for me. That makes him the determiner of my value versus him purchasing and paying for it because of who I was. So nowhere in any one of these Gospels do you find the doctrine of radical corruption as the basis for needing a Savior. No, the basis for needing a Savior is I want to be saved from my economical station. I want to be saved from my hardships. I want to be saved from this horrible marriage I'm in. I want to be saved from, you know what? I want to be saved from being an American. I want to be saved from... Everybody wants to be saved from something other than sin. And guess what? Jesus came to die for our sin. That's what he came to do. So no, you won't hear the basis, the biblical basis for needing a Savior. You will hear the humanistic basis for, being a, for needing a Savior. The basis for Christ in these false gospels is always the benefit, the benefit of this unrepentant individual, self-consumed, filled with arrogance, covetousness, greed, and envy. And how can they benefit even more from this death of Christ on a cross. You see, here's the thing. I love how John Calvin said this, that even a dog barks when his owner is assailed. Even a dog barks when his owner is attacked. Yet, for most part, Christianity is okay with all of these aberrant gospels that are being preached. Oh, yeah, Jesus did die for all of these frivolous things and these self-centered, self-righteous, self-absorbed purposes. But even the dog would bark if his master is assailed. Why isn't the church up in arms over, where's the gospel? Where's the really, where's Christ's actual message? Why, is he, why are his words being twisted? You know how angry you are when somebody twists your words, right? That's not what I said. They're liars. When it comes to everybody twisting Christ's words, it's like, well, that's the way they see it. No, it's not. You're just a little closer to home. Think about the person you love the most. And now think about somebody else twisting their words. It angers you. So let's use that as a gauge. How much do I love Christ? If in fact, people who twist his purposes consistently uh, continue without it angering me. So the basis for Christ in all of these aberrant gospels is always the benefit of unrepentant man. Man, without having to submit to God in any way, you can have favor. Man, without having to repent from sin in any way, God loves you. And of course, He's going to save you because He loves you. Not because you repented. No, because He loves you. Without having to deny themselves, yes, every promise of God to you is yea and amen. Do you follow what I'm saying? Any gospel message where repentance is absent is a false gospel. 
Every gospel, any gospel that tells you you're fine without telling you to repent from the very sin Jesus came to die, came to die and save you from, that gospel is trivializing the work of the cross. So, let us now then look at what the Holy Spirit says about repentance. And if you want to know what the Holy Spirit says, you go to the Spirit-filled words of God. That's how you know the Holy Spirit is speaking. And uh, let's look at the nuts and bolts of the, of the action called repentance. First in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6 and 7, it says this, Seek the Lord while He may be found, implying that there will be a time when He can no longer be found. There will be a time people will seek repentance but find no place for repentance. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way. And the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and He will have compassion on him. The Lord will have compassion on him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. You see, seeking the Lord is important. Calling upon His name is, is critical. But forsaking your wicked ways and unrighteous thoughts, that is part of how we seek and call after God. Let me say that again. Calling upon His name and seeking Him. These, this is very important, but how do you do it? You forsake your wicked way. That's how you do it. In other words, you repent. That's how you call upon the name of the Lord. That is how you seek Him. You repent from what? Sin. Self-righteousness. Pride. You see, it is impossible to, to talk about turning to Christ without also turning from sin. Because too many people are turning to Christ without ever turning from sin not knowing that it is one and the same thing. For me to turn to God means I am turning away from something and someone. When I turn to God, I am turning to God away from self-righteousness where I can save myself. When I turn to God, I'm turning away from the works of the flesh. I'm turning away from sin and wickedness, just like Isaiah called us to do. Because it is clear that the purpose of Christ's work is to deal with our sin issue. That's why He came. That's what He's calling us out of. That's what He's saving us from, sin. And you can go to many, many churches in this area and you'll never hear them use the word sin. You'll never hear them use the word wrath. You'll never hear them use the word hell. You will never hear them use the word repent. Not allowed to do it. Churches that are not allowed to preach on Romans chapter 1. Many verses they're not allowed to preach on. But that is an impotent gospel. That gospel has never saved anyone. It only deceives everyone. So let's ask the question, why do Bible believers therefore still preach repentance as part of the gospel? Why is it part of our gospel? Well, first because John the Baptist preached repentance. In Matthew 3, verse 1 and 2, now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first word in his sermon was what? Repent. Matthew 3, 8, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I guess one can ask that question this way. Do the people in your life recognize how you have turned away from sin consistently? Let me say it differently. Do the people in your life, can they see how you consistently turn from sin, even if it's the same sin? Can they? Is it evident to them that you're constantly turning, constantly turning to God, constantly turning to God by turning away from the sin? Is it evident to them? That is exactly what this verse is saying. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping 
with repentance. In other words, make sure that your repentance is real. Make sure that your repentance is visible. Make sure that your repentance is evident and that your repentance is consistent because that's proof that your repentance actually has fruit. So number two, why do the Bible believers still, rep still rep uh, preach repentance as part of the gospel? Why is it part of the gospel? Because number two, Jesus preached repentance. That's why we do. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, yeah, that should close the deal, right? Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, what was Jesus' first word in his sermon? Repent. In Luke 5, 31 to 32, and Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what Jesus came to do. Let me read it again. If you ever wanted to know Christ's purpose for coming, it's in Luke 5, 32, 31 and 32. It says, And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call the sinners to repentance. The purpose of Christ. And then in Mark 1, verse 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came, this is John the Baptist, after he got arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. This is the gospel of God in one sentence. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, turn away by turning to God and believe in the message that I've come to bring you. Repent and believe in the gospel. In today's evangelism, you will hear a lot about believing, but you'll never hear about repenting and believing. Only believe, only believe is the only message. But the message of God's, God's gospel is repent and believe. In Luke 13, 3, it says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 13, 5, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So according to Jesus' teachings, there is no salvation afforded a fallen human being outside of repentance. Repentance is God's chosen way of bringing somebody to a place of turning away from sin to God. And according to Christ, those who do not repent, in other words, those who do not turn to God away from sin, will perish. This is a promise from God. Hold fast to that promise. It's everyone's promise. <laughs> Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Heaven rejoices. When we turn, Luke 16, 30 through 31 says, But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. You know, this is the rich man. He's in Hades. He's begging Abraham to go and warn his family. He said, If you will send Lazarus, my family will believe. Send somebody from the dead. Have you ever, like, read these stories of people that have come from the dead and are telling everybody to repent? Well, evidently, God doesn't allow for that. So he says, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Let me just quickly tell you what's going on here. Moses and the prophets are the ones that helps us understand just how fallen we really are, how radically corrupt we really are, how totally depraved we really are. That's the Old Testament. That's why people want to throw it away. But if Moses and the prophets can't help you recognize in what a horrible state you are, that you are in fact in need of somebody like a perfect Lamb of God to save you from this horrible state, if that's not even sufficient 
to help you understand how much you need a savior, trust me, not even somebody rising from the dead will be able to convince that person that they need Jesus. Are you following what I'm saying? So the gospels that are being preached, <laughs> none of Moses or the prophets in them, none of the law in them to help us, to drive us to grace or to drive us to the cross. The gospels that are, that are void of Moses and the prophets, trust me, not even a person who rises from the dead will convince that church that they need Jesus. Jesus came to a church when he knocked on the door and he said, if, if, if anyone opens, I will come in. He came to a church to knock on the door. You know what that means? He wasn't inside. He wasn't in there. <laughs> the issue has always been about repentance. Repentance is the only proof that a man has been humbled by his fallen state. Repentance is the only proof that a man has turned to God. And I'm not making a light of, of believing, but too many people want to believe without repenting. And that's not true faith. That's not saving faith, at least. Luke 24, 46 and 47 says this, And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. That repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. So this is the strangest thing to me. While the Scriptures are calling us Bible teachers to proclaim repentance for forgiveness, in other words, turn to God in order to be forgive. Turn away from your sin to God in order to be forgiven. Even though the Bible shows us that very clearly, that this is the message we ought to preach. Repent! John the Baptist's first word in his message. Jesus, repent! His first word in his sermon. Even though we told to teach repentance for forgiveness, turning away from self to God in order to be forgiven, strangely enough, we now see pulpits preaching against the idea of repentance, and here's how they got there. They're saying that you are not saved through repentance because repentance is a work, and we are not saved by works. Therefore, you couldn't be, repentance couldn't be part of your gospel that saves because you didn't have to do anything to be saved. Well, we agree that you don't have to do anything to be saved. But what we don't agree upon is the fact that repentance is a work. Let's ask the third question. Why do believers still preach repentance as part of the gospel? Because the apostles preached repentance. So we have seeing that John the Baptist preached repentance, that's what we do. Jesus preached repentance, that's what we do. The apostles preached repentance, that's what we do. In Mark 6 verse 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. The, the apostles went out and preached this. This was the message, that men should repent. But today's ministers, of course, for most part, don't believe that this is an important message. I want to talk to the parents for a second. When last has your child seen you repent? To your wife? Or maybe to them? Or to somebody else? When last has, has your children seen you repent? Because how else are they going to learn how to do this? When last have they seen you humble yourself? Because to repent requires humility. When last have they seen you be compliant in this? So don't hold back. Your repentance is bearing much fruit, especially in those lives 
who are watching on. The fourth reason Bible believers still preach repentance as part of their gospel is because the New Testament church preached repentance. Look at this in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter, Peter said to them, repent. Again, first word in everyone's sermon is what? Repent. <laughs> so Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, again, repent then and turn to God. Can you see how repentance and turning to God is the same act? Repent, turn to God, so that your sin may be, sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. You see, the message we ought to proclaim today should obviously be the same as it was then. Why is it that we no longer hear about sin? Why is it that we no longer hear about repentance? I want to show you something. Now, there's an image here. Uh, Brother Han, I forgot to ask you about this. Do you have that image? Uh, many of you will remember this movie called The Shack. You remember this? Okay, so uh, I'm just showing you where our culture is at. And the movie The Shack, which was released March 3rd, 2017 grossed 96 million dollars at the box office at the time 96 million dollars that's a lot for a Christian movie Al Mohler said the film's depiction of God the Father Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is profoundly unbiblical and called it universalism many many uh, critics called it universalism Universalism is the idea that Jesus died for the whole world. For God so loved the whole world that He gave His only begotten Son for the whole world so that the whole world could be saved. Well, that simply isn't true. You see, many people believe that they are saved because God loves them. Watch this. Well, God loves me. That's why I'm saved. No, no, no. That's not why you're saved. You're saved because you repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's how your sins are forgiven. God doesn't wipe your sins away because He loves you. You know what that would be like? If God would do that, He would be like the most unjust judge whose son just murdered and raped a bunch of people, stands in front of his father as his father judges over him and says, you know what, I love you so, I'm going to just forgive you. Wouldn't we be in uproar over that? Sins aren't removed. Consequences don't go away because somebody loves, right? But God loved you so much that the consequences that were supposed to fall on you fell on Christ, and that's why you can walk free from those consequences. But this movie, The Shack, basically, basically portrays the whole idea that the whole universe, everybody, Muslims, Hindus, everybody, is going to be saved. Atheists will be saved. Why? Because Jesus' cross was powerful enough to save them. But well, we believe that Jesus' atonement on the cross is powerful enough to save them from their wicked heart by giving them a heart of flesh. And now they willed not sin, but righteousness. Therefore, they make decisions that's congruent with, in line with their will, and their line is in will with their nature. Their nature is in will with this brand new heart. See? That's how it works. Oh, I can choose whatever I want to. No, I know. That's the whole point. You choose in accordance with your will. And your will is always in line with your nature. And if you are a, a completely lost soul with a heart of stone, guess what your will is going to be like? To not will God. And you will make decisions to not choose Him. But if you get a brand new heart... That means you have a brand new nature. Your will will be in accordance with that brand new heart. Your will will be in line with it. You will will it's desires. And your decisions will prove that that's your brand new will that flows from a brand new nature. So yes, you are free to choose whatever you want, but not contrary to your will. Nobody has ever chosen anything contrary to their will. Somebody goes, oh yes, they have. I saw a guy who had somebody else put a gun to his head and said, give me your money or I'll take your life. 
You see, he didn't have a choice. Oh, yes, he does. He can either give his money, choose to give his money, or he can choose not to give his money, <laughs> right? His he's, decisions were just narrowed all the way down to two. But he still exercised his will, right, in accordance with his nature. So, yeah, you still make decisions as you wish, even if somebody takes away most of your decisions and leaves you with two. You still decide, <laughs> right? Yeah, people are free to decide. But here in the shack, you will find a minimum of 13 major heresies, which clearly articulates the state of the modern church because what? Everybody just ate it up like sweet cake, right? Everybody loved this movie. Everybody loved the book, promoted it in a big way. Churches did. And I will list a few of these in the shack. God is limited by His love. It portrays the picture that God couldn't be completely just because He loved so much. His love overrode His justice. He became unjust because of the amount of love He had. All that is required is God's love, therefore, not repentance. Also in this movie, you will find that God will never judge people for their sins. He loves them too much. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an issue of freeing them from their sin and calling them out of it. No, it was an issue of loving them so much that He, chose, that he would rather allow them to stay in their sin. And that's what parents do. Um, their child is completely out of hand, but they would... They love him so much they would rather leave them that way. <laughs> no, if you love your child, you wouldn't leave them that way, right? Also in the shack, it doesn't matter which way you get to God. Jesus is, wa is walking with all people in their different journeys. So it doesn't matter if you're searching for God, um, you know, as, as a tree hugger, you're going to find God there, <laughs> you know. No repentance required, but your truth, Oprah, wins at the end of the day. Many ways to God, she says, must be. They just must be. Also in this movie, everyone makes it to heaven. Everyone. Also in this movie, God has forgiven all humanity, whether they repent or not. So again, we see that repentance is a cuss word in modern day society and churches agree. The early church in Acts and the modern day church is simply no longer teaching and preaching the same message. They're teaching different messages now. And we have to just come to grips with it. We must, we must be okay. We must admit to this. Otherwise, go to the internet today and find every church you can who had sermons today and see how many, of, how many times will you hear somebody called to repentance. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, it says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. No more excuses. No more excuses. Can you see the sunrise? Don't ever think that you, you're excused from believing that there was no God. He calls everyone to repentance. So I want to make sure that we realize and recognize that John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. The apostles preached repentance. The early church in Acts preached repentance. And if you've ever heard anybody say, well, no, we don't repent anymore today. Your blood ought to boil. That used to happen in our church right here. Your blood ought to boil because that is neutering the gospel altogether. And you know what their gospel is? It's like, well, God's going to heal you. Okay, He's going to heal me from this. Now what am I going to die from? <laughs> he healed me from that. Now what's the, you know, at what point am I actually going to leave this earth? Because the gospel in their estimation is healing. That's, that's it. It's like, how old do you want to be one day? <laughs> Jesus is saving me. I'm 375 years old. Thank God for the cross. 
He didn't come and die on the cross so you can have a longer life. He came to die on the cross so that you can be saved from your sin. Repentance matters because it is an essential part of the very saving work of God. It is the sanctifying process after being saved. In other words, sanctification is proof that you have been justified. So what is repentance? What is repentance? The word repentance is metanoia. It's the changing of the mind which results in the changing of belief, of character, of actions, of life. In the Old Testament, throughout time, throughout time when, they, when they repented, they would go on a fast. When they repented, they would rip their clothes. When they repented, they would stop eating. Uh, I already said that. They would fast. They would rip their clothes. They would put sackcloth and ashes on their head. And when they repented, they would sing psalms. That's where we get lamentations from. They would sing songs from lamentations. Repentance always had to do with them being crushed over the sin that they were just participating in. That's why when Jesus said, he said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the ones who mourn. What was he saying? Blessed are the repentant. I'm not looking for another sacrifice. I'm looking for a broken and contrite heart. He's close to the brokenhearted. And the guy whose girlfriend just broke up with him goes, well, that's why God's so close to me. That's not the brokenhearted we're talking about here. When you're brokenhearted over your own loss of innocence, now you're brokenhearted, now you are mourning, and that is the brokenness God is talking about. That person is close to God. That person is blessed. The broken and contrite heart. The one who mourns the loss of his own innocence. When lost, have you just cried over the fact that you have made so many mistakes in life? Like I've already, I've already repented over those. I know, but sometimes, sometimes just go ahead and tear a piece of your clothing. <laughs> it's a sign of the heart that was wrenched and ripped. Sometimes we just have to go and cry over everything that we've done. Because oftentimes you ask people, you say like, hey, what do you regret in your life? And people very often will go like, well, you know, there was once, you know, a stock I was going to invest in. Man, I regret not investing in that stock. Because today, apples, you know what it is. You know, I could have, I was going to buy it in pennies on this. That's their biggest regret in life. But truthfully, a person with a broken and contrite heart you know, you ask them that question, they start crying. That's a repentant heart. But guess what? That's the blessed individual. <laughs> that's the blessed person. And that's, that's the uh, tax collector. You know, while the Pharisee is like, well, thank God I'm not like this one and I'm not like that one. And guess what? I've done all of this and I've tithed and I've done all these great things. And over there is the tax collector just, just beating himself up. Oh, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Metanoia is a call to turn away from self-righteousness, to turn to Christ for your righteousness. Seeking righteousness desperately, but you can't find it anywhere but in Christ, turning away from all but Christ. Who do I repent to and, and what? Uh, who do I repent to? And who do I have faith in? In Acts 20, verse 21, it tells us very clearly how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You repent, God, before you and you alone have I sinned. I repent before you and I have faith in the cross 
You see, my desire to repent, watch this, don't miss this, my desire to repent, my repenting heart, my heart that yearns to be completely repented, is evidence that God is at work in me. I'll show it to you. In Acts 5, verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand and as a leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance. Okay, so here we come to the very crux of the matter. So, the question we asked earlier is, um, is repentance a work? Well, this scripture right here answers that question. No, it's a gift. <laughs> it's not a work. It's a gift. God brought Jesus to the place where Jesus is giving repentance to Israel for the purpose of forgiveness of their sins. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, uh, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Again, we see God granted these Gentiles repentance. At the time, the apostles thought that repentance was only given to the, to the Israelites, to the Jews. And then when they looked over there and they saw all the, all the Gentiles rejoicing, they were like, well, I guess God gave them the same gift, the gift to repent, the gift of a repenting heart. The gift of a repenting heart. 2 Timothy 2 verse 25, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant or give them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Again, we see the re repentance is a gift from God to you. And this gift is based in His love. It's based in His mercy. It's based in His grace that He has bestowed upon you. When you desire repentance, that is evidence of God's mercy. That is evidence of God's grace actively working in your life. So when somebody comes to the cross, they always come repenting to God and believing in Jesus Christ. Father, today we thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that as we stand before your word, we deny none of it. We submit to all of it. We embrace it from beginning to end. We thank you for your mercy and your grace in our lives, giving us a heart that yearns to repent, to turn to you away from self, away from sin. While every head's bowed, every eye's closed, I'd like you to take a moment and allow the Lord to put his finger on that part of your life, not your neighbor's life, your life, not your spouse. Your life, not your children. Where you have to turn. And if you haven't turned to Christ, beg God for His mercy if you don't already desire to turn to Christ. Father, thank you so much for forgiveness. The cross of Christ, sufficient, no matter what size the sin. 
no matter how damaging. Original sin and personal sin has been to our lives. You forgive us. That's who you came for, the sick. You said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, you taught over and over today that you've called us to repentance for the purpose of forgiveness. We turn away from self-righteousness. We turn to Christ's righteousness. We turn away from sin to God. And we walk away from the very sin Jesus came to save us from. Thank you for sanctifying our lives, the only evidence we have that we have been justified. Amen. 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 Did you get something out of the word this morning? Amen.